Creator God, you prepare a new way in the wilderness, and your grace waters the desert. Help us to recognize your hand working miracles beyond our imagining. Open our hearts to be transformed by the new thing you are doing so that our lives may proclaim the extravagance of your love. In the presence of Jesus Christ. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, 43rd chapter, beginning at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariots and horse, army and warrior. Thy lay down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Here ends the reading.
A reading from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, the third chapter beginning at verse 4b. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor, of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Yes, yes, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regret, regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteous from, this, from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly called of God in Jesus Christ. Here ends the reading.
reading from the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There a dinner was held in Jesus' honor. As Martha served and Lazarus reclined at the table with Jesus, Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the disciple who was to betray Jesus, said, Why was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor? Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal from it. Leave her alone, said Jesus. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was in Bethany, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests plotted to kill Jesus as well, to kill Lazarus as well. Since it was on account of Lazarus that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm grateful to Reverend Conforti for the invitation to preach today. Very grateful. I get to minister with a good friend, and I get to preach at First Methodist in Salisbury. I love preaching. I preached most every week for 10 years as senior pastor at University United Methodist in Chapel Hill. And now in my role at the Divinity School, I don't get to preach as frequently. And being in the pew more than in the pulpit has taught me a few things. First off, it's taught me that preachers confuse their love of preaching with their congregation's love of their preaching. That is a realization that has humbled me greatly. <laughs> My time in the pews also reminded me that the warm welcome extended to guest preachers is warmest for the first 10 to 15 minutes of the sermon. I don't want to overstay my welcome. I want to be invited back even. I want to be invited back. I want to not overstay my welcome because First Methodist in Salisbury has a vibrant present and a storied history. And I mention your history because your history is combined with my history. They're intertwined. Both sets of my grandparents were members here at First Methodist. My father's parents, Mary and Carl King, they moved here when my grandfather King was the Secretary of Education for the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church. Salisbury was the conference office for that office way back then. I never knew my grandfather King. He died the day that they were moving out of the parsonage on North Fulton Street, laid down to take a nap, and didn't wake up. That was two years before I was born. I didn't know him, but I've enjoyed my whole life learning and hearing about him through stories from those who did. Stories from pastors all over this conference, including Fred Jordan, 
a new friend of mine in your congregation. Now, my mother's parents, Janice and H.E. Brewer, they moved to Salisbury when my grandfather, Brewer, worked for FCX. And it was one day in the fall when the Sunday school classes were moving up to their new class in the new year, the junior high and the senior high kids were switching rooms on the second floor of the education building here, that's when my mom and my dad saw each other for the first time. Their wedding was here, and it was the second wedding in this sanctuary. Billy King and Helen Brewer standing here many years before I was born. Even if our histories were not intertwined, yours and mine, I dare say I'd still feel welcome in this church. I'm one of those who feels welcome in any sanctuary. I can imagine your beautiful congregation, your beautiful church, decorated for Christmas, for Easter, for weddings, for baptisms. I can imagine the life going on here, decorated too for funerals. I was last here in the sanctuary for a funeral. As a high school senior, I attended the funeral of my mother's father, the last of my grandparents to die, H.E. Brewer. H.E., who was so active in Kiwanis, back when Kiwanis held the pancake breakfast here in the fellowship hall, him standing in the apron that I still put on when me and my elementary-age girls bake in our kitchen, flipping pancakes, telling them stories about their great-grandfather. He loved this church. He loved that ministry. I can still recall Kelly Jones' sermon that day. He preached from Ezekiel 22, verse 30. In that verse, the prophet speaks for God, saying, I looked for anyone to stand in the gap for me on behalf of the land in order to save it. I'll never forget Reverend Jones describing my grandfather Brewer as a man who stood in the gap for God. That was one of the moments that called me into ministry. I won't forget that sermon. I won't forget that day. I've not forgotten this church. And that memory and today's gospel have me contemplating the cheery subject of death this morning. It is Lent, after all, a season that reminds us of our fallen nature, of our mortality. In the gospel reading today, Jesus' body is, we have to say it, it's it's just there. Jesus' body is being prepared for burial before he's even died. The perfume Mary pours on his feet, the pint of nard, it's a burial perfume intended to be poured over a body in a tomb. But here, Mary uses it in an act of extravagant blessing. It's an expression of love, even in the face of impending death. Each of us would do the same thing, I believe. If we knew a loved one was going to die, we'd take every opportunity we had to shower that person with every sign of our love. I know we would. We'd want them to know just how beloved they are just how precious they are as they walk forward to face what we all will face one day. Dr. Teresa Berger is a professor at Yale Divinity School. 
And inside her office is a beautiful pine bookcase that looks like a coffin. This bookcase looks like a coffin because it is a coffin. Right now, it just has bookshelves placed in it horizontally, standing on end in the corner. It's a coffin that is Teresa Berger's coffin. She's had it built. She has it there in her office, reminding her every day of her mortality. And one day when she dies, someone will remove the shelves and remove the books and lay that bookcase down, and it will be her pine coffin. If you ask her why she has a coffin in her office, her coffin in her office, she'll tell you it reminds her of her death, and she wants to be reminded of her death in order to remember the preciousness of every moment, the gift that life is, in order to be encouraged every day to live this life well. Dr. Berger is thankful for her bookcase coffin. But I wonder, is, is that gratitude shared by her family and her friends as much as she has it? In my experience, accompanying families with a member of the family who's dying, facing death can sometimes be easier for the person who's dying than for the loved ones left behind. Grieving the death of a loved one is never easy to say the least. Grief turns your normal, everyday, expected life into a foreign country. Things that made sense before don't make sense now. An adjustment happens when everything is the same and, and yet everything has changed. Grief's like a lead vest you wear under your clothes, weighing you down, sapping your strength. And too often it's not perceived by those around us. And when others do perceive it, what they say can sometimes just come across as easy platitudes. Regrettably, perhaps the words of preachers may especially come across as easy platitudes. A friend of mine is a pastor in Australia. He doesn't much like Easter in America. Now, you'll remember that being in the southern hemisphere, Australia's seasons are the exact opposite of ours. Christmas is in June down there. It's in the summer. It's not in June. It's in the summer. For us, it would feel like June. Their seasons are flip-flopped from ours. Brian doesn't really like Easter here in America because he worries that in America, we preachers don't truly know how to preach Easter. After all, he says the blooming flowers of spring do the preaching for us. He thinks instead that every preacher should preach Easter like he does each fall. Every fall, preaching resurrection when the colors are fading and the trees are losing their leaves. Easter in the fall will not accept platitudes. 
I think during the pandemic, these last few years, a lot of us have dispensed with platitudes. We started saying hard truths to ourselves and to others. We started to show our rough edges a little more. And as so many people died, especially early in the pandemic, I noticed some people demanding that the deaths of their loved ones be acknowledged in new ways. These people began appropriating grieving rituals that were last used in the 1800s, the Victoria, Victorian era, wearing black dresses when they went out in public, wearing black armbands, hanging black wreaths on the front door. The Victorians maintained these kind of public rituals of grieving for one full year after a loved one's death. And I'm inclined to think after these last few years that we might benefit from doing the same. Public rituals of mourning, outward expressions of grief, I think they'd help us be more aware of the burdens that one another are carrying. And as Christians, we're the ones better prepared to help others confront grief and face death. After all, each one of us has already died, right? When we are baptized, we proclaim quite clearly that in baptism we have died to the world and we have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. We share in his final victory. When death itself has been overcome, there is nothing to fear. One cannot be intimidated. One can hold to the truth no matter what others say. One can proclaim grace as the first word and the last word of our lives, no matter the signs or the temptation to think otherwise. We have died already, for our baptism took us to the tomb, and Jesus has raised us to new life. By water and the Spirit we proclaim when we baptize. Yet too often, too many people feel alone in their grief. They feel overcome by all of the pressures of life. And it's in these times that we have to press on through the darkness, trusting that the promised light will come. Press on, says Paul in the letter to the Philippians that we read this morning. Press on. I'll never forget a lesson in dying that a church member taught me several years ago. Ed was diagnosed with cancer, and he rejoiced at the diagnosis. He saw his cancer diagnosis as a gift. Now, forgive me if that offends you, but these are Ed's words. He was thankful for his terminal diagnosis. It awakened him to what a beautiful and unmerited gift his life was. It gave him an opportunity to say goodbye, to say he loved the people he loved, to say he forgave the people he needed to forgive, to hear from others that he was forgiven. Ed used his last months to tell his family and friends all these things. He showed them how deeply he loved them, and they were able to show him in return. And Ed took the time to tell everyone he could 
that God held him, that God was in control, that he was the Lord's. Nothing else mattered to Ed. Not his medical practice, not his stock portfolio, not his real estate, not his reputation. Like the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, Ed counted all of it as loss compared to the surpassing love of Christ Jesus. Loss, you know, that word in Hebrew is actually not loss. This has been, um, shall, we, shall we say, sanitized in our English translation. It's, it's much more colorful language, language that's not fit for family consumption, should we say. Whatever gains I had, Paul writes, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of surpassing value of knowing Christ as my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I regard them as rubbish. That gets a little closer to the real meaning, if you get my drift. I regard them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want to be found righteous in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith in Christ. So I press on to make this righteousness my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. At the end of his life, Ed knew that nothing he had done had made him worthy for God's love. No achievement, no certificate, no degree, no award or recognition had had anything to do with the blessedness of his life. And he claimed that and named that. He pushed on through the fear of death that certainly arose. But again and again he lifted up the name of Jesus. And the joy he found in doing that, it was a solace to his friends. And it was a signpost to his family, an example that one can get there, that we indeed are dead to the world and alive in Jesus. We can be joyful in the mundane. We can be joyful in the trials, we can be joyful even in the face of death. I share that story as encouragement, for I know that all of us carry more than we show. One of my favorite musical groups is the Avid Brothers. They are the grandkids of Methodist pastors. Scott and Seth and and the troop around them. And one of their songs is called True Sadness. It is the happiest, most danceable tune you've ever heard. But the words say that everyone, if you take the time to peel back the onion, you'll find in them true sadness. Sadness. That is not the last word. We have been baptized. We have died to the world. 
We are alive in Jesus Christ. This day, I invite you to the table where once again we can partake of him and experience him and trust that this is a sign that grace is the first word and grace is the last word. And no matter what we face, we are the Lord's and the Lord is ours. Amen.